2021 Kindle edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me on today's episode. Now, today is kind of a special day because I had the opportunity to engage in about an hour-long debate discussion on the topic of Christian nonviolence, or as some might use the term, Christian pacifism. Now, Due to the length of the discussion, uh, I wanted to forego having a law of the day in order to maximize the time spent on that particular topic of Christian nonviolence. And the discussion slash debate, it's a friendly discussion with two men who are from Sattler College and on one side advocating for Christian nonviolence and on the other side, myself and a fellow co-worker of mine. So before we go into the debate, Please allow me to provide some introductions. On the side that's advocating for a Christian nonviolence, we have Zach Johnson and Dean Taylor. Now, Zach Johnson is the Dean of Students of Sattler College and holds a Master in Public Policy, concentrating in international and global affairs from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and has a bachelor's degree from the U.S. Air Force Academy. With him in the discussion is Dean Taylor, who is president of Sattler College, and Dean earned a Master of Health Science from the Texas Wesleyan University and a Bachelor of Science in Nursing from the University of Texas at Tyler. Dean also served as a sergeant in the U.S. Army stationed in Germany before attending college. On the side advocating for a biblical or a Christian understanding of violence, the proper use of violence, the use of just war, capital punishment, things like that, is myself and with me is my co-worker and fellow officer, Gordon Beecroft. And Gordon is an officer in the U.S. Air Force and a fellow co-worker of mine and a friend of mine. He's also a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Weapons School, which, for those who are not familiar with that, is equivalent to the Top Gun program for the Navy. So that is just a brief introduction of the players involved. And without further ado... The topic of Christian nonviolence. All right, well, I am joined today by my friend, co worker, Gordon Beecroft, and uh, Zach Johnson and Dean Taylor. Uh, thank you guys all for joining me. Yeah, uh, thanks for having us on. Yeah, yeah, no, it's going to be a, a great discussion. I've never had four people on at the same time on the podcast, so uh, this will be a first for me, and hopefully it all goes well. <laughs> but before we uh, just kind of get into the uh, nuts and bolts of the discussion, for um, our listeners, uh, we're going to be discussing Christians and nonviolence today and the, and the relationship between Christians and uh, the government or the military, the police, things like that. And it's, it's useful and helpful for us, I think, to define our terms. And I'll offer some definitions out there, and then I'll, I'll throw it to, uh, to Zach and Dean to maybe offer some caveats or or you guys can maybe uh, uh, touch on them a little bit and then present your uh, your case for what you believe and why you believe it. Um, but I do know, at least from my own reading and experience, that there is a, a kind of a, a, a spectrum, if you will, of, of nonviolent uh, uh, doctrine or, or beliefs amongst Christians. So mm-hmm. for on the one end of the spectrum, perhaps you have what might be called like firm uh, firm pacifism, uh, the idea that any and all 
any form of physical violence would be unlawful for any Christian to uh, engage in. It, it couldn't even be uh, throwing a punch or, or just um, anything that could hurt uh, somebody else. It must be passive regardless of the, of the situation. And maybe uh, some in that camp might even go so far as to say even uh, indirect support of someone who is engaging in violence would be uh, unlawful. So uh, making any kind of item, providing any kind of item or paying taxes um, that could be used for military purposes. Um, maybe that kind of lines more with like an, an Amish or an extreme Amish perspective where they have to be detached completely from society in order to you know, not be guilty of paying taxes into a potentially violent uh, society. And then kind of on the, on the other end of the, of the nonviolent spectrum is, a, is kind of a soft, a soft pacifism where uh, maybe some violence is acceptable, but it, it has to be not lethal. It cannot result in taking someone's life and it has to be for defensive uh, purposes only. So you could resist somebody attacking you, but you know, maybe using some kind of defensive martial arts uh, like Aikido, uh, where you don't actually um, injure the person. Um, and, but, and you could support others that use non-lethal forms of violence. You know, maybe you're selling pepper spray or you're inventing a better taser, something, something like that. Um, and I think that, that um, soft pacifism might be a little bit easier to, to practice while still in the society, you don't have to completely detach from the society uh, in there. And I, I imagine there's some subdivisions even within in, within that. You know, some might believe that it's wrong for Christians to engage in any uh, lethal uh, violent behavior, but but they're okay with the government, uh, you know, presumably a non-Christian government, you know, doing that in the military or in the police force and. And, and maybe they're okay with having a police force, but they don't feel comfortable or believe it's right for, for Christians to be on, on the police force if that potentially leads to uh, a taking of life. So anyways, that, those, I guess that's kind of like the, the bookends, if you will, of, of nonviolence. And I, I ask you guys, Dean, Zach, to kind of maybe um, add some details to that and then present where do you guys uh, fall on that spectrum and, and why? Hey, thanks. Thanks, Eric. I, I, I don't know if I, it, it's a little bit of different dichotomy, I think, than what we would use. And the spectrum, I think, is a little different. Sure. Um, and the framing, I think, is kind of important. Um, let me, let me, let me, let me start with our concept, maybe in a different kind of frame. Um, let me ask you, you guys are, are both military, and I'm sure, have you ever, any of you ever been in a foreign embassy before? Uh, I don't, I can't, say that I have. I have to kind of rack my brain on that maybe at some point, but no, I can't say that I have. Have you, Gordon, ever been to a foreign embassy, like in a different country, where, particularly American embassy in a foreign country? No, I have not. Hmm. I would have thought for sure both of you would have. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, concept because when you're there, it's it, there's a lot of different worlds coming together. Um, so like when I was in Germany, I was um, I was American soldier living in Germany, and I in those days I I voted in American elections. Of course, I paid American taxes, spoke American English, and watched American television in those days. Um, but yet, I was living in Germany. You know, I was American citizen living in Germany, and 
it, there's an interesting dynamic that's in that. And so at times uh, for, you know, for travel or something, I'd make it over to the American embassy. Even lately, being a missionary, I was recently in Bulgaria. In the middle of Bulgaria, which has this big, you know, uh, post-communist vibe, I went in there to a, an American embassy, and it's, and it's really funny because you're outside, you know, it's this kind of communist feel to the thing. You go in, there's a guy named Jack or John, they're eating hot dogs, and they're listening to pop, you know, and you're like, you realize you're in a little of America in the middle of Bulgaria, and this concept of, of particularly me as a, a soldier that was living in Germany or being in an embassy, that's the early Christian concept of the church. That's really it in a nutshell, is that we are embassies of, the, of heaven. We are a nation within a nation. Now, when I was in Germany, um, I was a good, for all practical purposes, a good citizen. I if I, I would, if I was fed, I'd gotten trouble. I would be, you know, I'd pay, of course, all my German taxes that I was supposed to pay. I lived off base. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't have voted for the Burgermeister or certainly wouldn't have ran for the Burgermeister. And I, by all means, would never have fought in the, in the army of, of the German army because I was an American living in Germany. And that, if I could put the concept of the early Christian concept of, of the kingdom theology, the views of, of the kingdom of heaven now coming to earth and living in these nations on the earth, I think that puts it in a, in a nice perspective. We're the people of God, the nation of God, the kingdom of God, although we are good citizens and we are doing our place here, but we obey the laws and this good, good website uh, booster there. We obey the laws of this land. We obey the, the, the guidelines of this land, but we, but we are, we are lived by the teachings of a, a, of a different kingdom. And we, this is the way we propagate that we're followers of Christ. And so that's kind of more of the paradigm that I would, I would start with more than, than the spectrum that I could. Well, that's fair. No, I appreciate um, that perspective and, and, and helping to clarify where you guys are, are coming from on that. Uh, Zach, did you have any thoughts to add to that? Yeah, I, I like the, I like the what Dean laid out there with the the king, the two kingdoms theology, and then I, I I tend to you know you know I I believe in nonviolence, and I tend to avoid the word pacifism a little bit because it, it's a it's there's a little bit of political loading to the word pacifism and sort of a the word that comes from is a, a passive force, and I think. You can still be nonviolent and active in your beliefs, and still being involved in some of the different areas that a lot of us care about. That's just what I would add to that. Is that's why I like to avoid the the word pacifism because I I tend not to align with it politically, and and fundamentally I like to be active in in the world I see. Just I <laughs> but just rejecting violence as a as a way to interact with the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. I did. That's why I like to avoid it and try to try to. I know a lot of pacifists are sort of put into the like the sort of a hippie camp. Exactly. And, yeah. and we're not trying to, to project that. Even the word no. non-resistance. I heard one writer once say, you know, calling it non-resistance is like calling marriage non-adultery. You know, <laughs> it's the uh, the teachings of Christ are the cure for humanity. 
And so they're active. They're very active. And so sometimes the pacifist vibe is just something we try to avoid a little bit. So yeah, well said, Zach. Uh, sure, fair enough. And well, I, I appreciate the, uh, the, uh, the embassy concept um, because that is something that I too, as a Christian, very much firmly believe that uh, as Christians, we are ambassadors um, for, for God. And we are living in a, uh, a, a, a world that you have God's kingdom and the uh, kingdom of the world. And so we have a, a sense of, of dual uh, citizenship. Of course, my citizenship as a Christian overrides uh, and is ultimate over everything else. And so where, where God's rules or God's law conflicts with man's law, you know, mm-hmm. as the apostles say, I have mm-hmm. to obey God rather than, than men. So I wonder if perhaps that will be a, a, an important point of our discussion is to look at, well, okay, what, what does God's law have to say about these things? Because yeah, in the embassy, uh, you're under the authority. I mean, that, that embassy is the, um, is the authority of that particular nation. So technically on the American embassy, you're on American soil in, right. uh, in those countries. So you follow American law and right. that's right. the, that's the sovereign. Yeah. So I guess in a, in a way as well, you know, God, King Jesus is the sovereign. And so I'm under his authority and have to, um, I want to obey his, his law there. Uh, does awesome. that make sense? Great. Well, and we're going to be excited having you over to our camp. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, it's a bowl. Hey, <laughs> hey, great. Be confident. That's good. Hey, hey. <laughs> but so Gordon, I want to get you in on this. Uh, any thoughts to add so far in our discussion? I think that the analogy that you guys, that you use Dean with the embassy, uh, I think helps to understand uh, your your position better than maybe even just looking at the the spectrum, and I, I think we th- we think about that um, that dual citizenship and being ambassadors of Christ um, mm-hmm. kind of daily, right? As we watch the news or we interact with people or we go about our daily lives, we a- as believers should always have that in our in our mind that we are ambassadors for Christ in in each and everything that we do, um, and. So within that, though, there's always, you know, because we are still, um, we are still sinful, right? We we are still in our in our flesh. That's we are we are conflicted by that. So I appreciate the analogy, and I think that just to add that, you know, being an ambassador to Christ on Earth each and every day uh, is the position to adopt, and 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 for our um, how we should see the world. Yeah. Amen. Um, one of our fundamental disagreements perhaps might be on understanding and applying the, the law of God. So how do you guys go about uh, looking at God's law and applying it? And how does that lead you to the position that you hold now? It's a great question. So I'll just tell you me personally, um, you know, we, we were both, I was very patriotic growing up. And so I just want to say that I don't think the just war theology is ridiculous. I, I, uh, there's obviously been a lot of intelligent arguments made um, that can def- that have attempted to try to defend it theologically. So, and I very much was a somewhat a very big supporter of that, you know, in my in my upbringing. 
an incident that happened in my life that really kind of staggered me or kind of shook me up a little bit is I, I was in traveling to Berlin. I visited the wall in 1988 when my wife was in basic training. And as I was there, it was right in the height of Cold War, you know, Germany and all the Constantina wire and all the, you know, the, 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 the communists that were there and everything. It was very impressive. But then when my wife got out of basic training, we went and visited Berlin again. And I visited in 1989. And now the wall was coming down. And there was a scene that hit me. As I was walking up to the wall, there was these communist soldiers, an East German or Russian, I wasn't sure, leaning through the wall, screaming Frieden and Bruder. And, and I remember just walking up to that, shaking his hand. He was trying to kiss me through the wall and everything. And I was thinking, you know, so what changed? You know, so like, why could last year I could have been called on to shoot this guy? And now he's my friend. And I started to ponder this. I just started for the first time, I don't know, just really even questioning where you draw these, these very lines. So, you know, I began to look into the theology of it. And for a while, I, I thought, well, the theologians have it, you know, figured out. They, and so I went to the chaplain and talked to him, and he gave me a book on the just war theory. And it was really the first time I ever really studied it, you know, at a scholarly level. And so as I began to read through that, I, I started to get more and more nervous. And before I read the book, I just kind of figured the theologians had this thing figured out. When I got to the end of the book and I started to think, wow, so like these are the reasons to defend just war against the, the teachings of Jesus, I, I, I frankly got more scared about it. Um, but then the book and, uh, did something else to me is that it talked about this naivety, this childlikeness that the early Christians were just universally non-resistant. And so it wasn't until the fourth century and maybe even to the fifth century with Augustine, that they really spelled out these just war theories and, and got it to be more understood. And so I started thinking, I thought like, well, so how do you, how do you make it through all these 300 years and everything with just a very literal view of Jesus Christ to now being taken so not literal and the ramifications. So, you know, I've read Augustine, I've read the different arguments for the just war theory, but here's the thing that you have to come to, to, to really realize, you have to understand there is no just war teaching in the Old Testament. Zero. There is no just war teaching in the New Testament. Zero. There is no just war teaching in the first 300 years of the church. Zero. And that is challenging to ponder. Now, granted, there's holy war. There's justice issues and things like that to deal with in the Old Testament. But the kind of concept that the, that the fifth century writers came up with a just war theory does not exist in the word of God. And so as I pondered that and walked through that, I had to say, okay, so where, what do you do with the state? What do you do with these things? It was then I think that the liberal pacifists, I believe in my opinion, made it just as big a mess as the just war theory people. The liberal pacifists tried to explain away the Old Testament, try to say that, oh, those were, you know, parables or whatever, those don't really count, and what we really need is, is pacifist governments and things like this, and it just seemed nonsense as much as the just war theory seemed like nonsense to me. So it wasn't until I guess I really dug in and understood the early church concept of a two kingdom that God did indeed give us and has always given us 
the sword to govern the ungodly from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve days until this day, and that in the kingdom of God, particularly as brought in by Jesus Christ, he has given us a different kind of a sword and a different kind of um, a battle. But we don't try to explain away the Old Testament or try to um, undermine all those teachings. We want to believe the entire word of God. Uh, and that's what's, I, I think, important to us. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I do appreciate that, by the way, because it is it, a common thing uh, with people I talk to is they do kind of throw out the, the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, it's because of some of those icky laws yeah. Um, yeah. You know, with regards to slavery or mm -hmm. animal sacrifice or uh, prohibitions against uh, homosexuality, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, I kind of, bef I want this, I'll offer one, I'm going to ask you a question regarding yeah. the just war theory aspect because it, it kind of, you know, I perked up a little bit when you, when you mentioned yeah. that there was no just war mentioned in, in the Old Testament. Now, one of my favorite passages as a as a military soldier is Deuteronomy 20. Um, so so yeah so that that whole chapter talks about God's laws for Israel regarding when it goes when Israel goes out to war. So it's it's kind of long but please bear with me. I think it's important that we read it and then let's and then I want I want to get your thoughts on that and then bring in you know Gordon and Zach on on the conversation. So so here is the passage when you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people, saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. Now, when you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves, and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not the cities of the nations here, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, 
the Hivites and the Jebusites as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an ax against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food. You may destroy and cut down that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. I guess the end of the long chapter 20 there. So yeah, yeah. I just want to kind of ask you guys, um, it does seem like from my perspective here that there's God is giving them rules for warfare, but he makes a distinction between um, other cities or those nations far away. There's to be certain rules for them. I, I'm imagining someone like the Babylonians or the Assyrians or the Egyptians. So, and then there's special rules for the purging of the land, the, the typical, what we see, the holy war, if you will, of wiping these seven nations out of the land of Israel, those nations, they get, they get total warfare, they get complete destruction. But these other nations in the future, you might go to war, who knows, um, these, you have to kind of offer terms and make peace and, and do these things. So what, what, how do you guys handle that, that text there? Yeah, it, it, it's the, uh, you know, comparing this to the, the just war theory is just really not fair at all. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what we see here is the wrath of God being poured out on a people and a nation that God is wanting them to, to take over and to inhabit. And, and certainly we've seen in our American history, well, in the Western world, well, in all of world history, you know, these types of genocides that have, that have gone on. And it's, this is a very difficult passage, I mean, for uh, mm -hmm. unbelievers to read. And I don't try to explain it away. I, I really don't. And I don't try to say this is just some war metaphor that when it's talking about enslaving little ones and killing and not leaving nothing breathing, um, this is some pretty big wrath of God being poured out on the earth kind of a thing. And to even hint that this is um, can be done in sort of a polite way, I, I think is not doing it justice. Um, so I guess the point that I'm making here is that what is consistent with this? is it's a make it's a certainly a a brilliant a way to do a holy war and also have effects of those that you're not really affecting over here and over there but in our way don't get in our way and this is where i think we have to be very careful not to play games with the word of god and with the old testament you can't play with these laws and take them and sort of i'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that and this and that and i'll and i'll put it together because what this has done in our church history has caused people like Charlemagne or, you know, Charles Martel or something to take these very passages once we realize that these are now for application for the New Testament and have genocide people in the name of God. But honestly, I think that those crusades and those military battles that have been done in church history are taking the, this whole line of thinking more truthfully and more honestly than this kind of playing with it and trying to say that this is sort of a just war theory. We can kind of take this fringe of it and add it to Augustine's term over here. I just don't think it's doing justice to the text. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't, I mean, certainly we can discuss how we take an Old Testament passage 
and apply it to the to the New Testament. Um, and I'm, you know, that'd be a, a good discussion. I guess I was just trying to kind of point out that um, in the Old Testament, it seems like yes, a lot of people I talk to who hold to a nonviolent position, they they kind of dismiss all of the war stuff. Mm-hmm. Because that's all just the holy war. That was a specific command to engage in warfare um, as God's instrument of judgment against those Canaanites living in the land. And that's true to a point, but this particular passage of Deuteronomy 20 seems to provide rules for future conflict that were not necessarily um, against those uh, Canaanite nations, that, that these are rules for Israel to follow. Um, even after they're in the land, they're settled, they've wiped out the, the wicked pagans, mm-hmm. which they never end up doing, but assuming that they did, they mm-hmm. would still have neighbors around them, such as the Persians or the, the mm-hmm. Babylonians or the Egyptians. And if they got into a war, it, it's not a holy war in that regard. It's not it's not an instrument of God's judgment, but there are still rules. So, so basically, there was fighting that that was allowed in a non-holy war sense. Does that kind of make sense? The way I'm kind of it, saying it does. I mean, I I think it's a stretch, but it makes sense. I I I think it's it's a good argument, and um, and if we didn't have the test tube of history to kind of see how that played out. Um, it might carry a little more weight. I mean, I can give Augustine a little, uh, you know, credit for trying to think of some ways to create a just war theory and try to find some pieces of this on the fringes to apply to something. I, I just, I just think it's 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 a slippery slope from a hermeneutic level, um, and then it's even a worse of a slippery slope when I see that the churches who've really taken it seriously, mm-hmm. when they don't have a pagan nation to keep them, you know. Honor, you know, to keep them in check, that people have taken these kind of passages and the destruction that's been caused from that interpretation. I, my humble opinion is, I feel it's something that needs to be repented of from the church and not propagated. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I wanted to get um, uh, Gordon. Do you have some thoughts uh, for for Zach and Dean to maybe something on a similar line, maybe some different train of thought that came to your mind? No, I, I, I agree, uh, Dean. I, I think there's, uh, there is a significant amount of danger in the misinterpretation or misapplication of uh, God's word. But thinking about uh, applying God's law today, principalizing it for us today, one of the que- and we don't have to go this direction, but one of the questions that kind of comes to my mind hearing your position is, how do you conceive of um, of international relations? Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so then, and then what? Yeah, how do you conceive of international relations? How do you how do you uh, reconcile with, um, I guess, fear and anarchy among nations? And and again, we don't yeah, have to go that yeah. direction. I don't want to take the conversation, but that's a question that comes to my mind here in your position um, with Deuteronomy twenty. I guess maybe backing up more the the uh, backing up more the uh, if I was trying to hint at where this is. So if we're not talking about an active war where someone's in our way, you know, we're talking about the fringes or something like that, and how we deal with those people. I guess maybe a bigger issue is: do we believe that God has 
you know, ordained a sword to, to rule the nations with that keeps things in check. Um, and, and, and let me just make something also very clear with us. It's maybe a little different than liberal pacifism. And that would be that we do believe it is. I, so from the beginning, and I, I would follow if you've ever had the chance to read uh, Martin Luther's um, Two Kingdoms on his basing upon uh, the, temporal king, the temporal nation. And he goes through a, a lot of good detail there on the dividing of those two kingdoms. I actually think the Anabaptists took a lot of that and took it further than, than Luther. But the, the, the spelling out of understanding that from the beginning, God has used the sword and the fear of the sword to govern the ungodly. And that is, uh, that is clear from Cain to Lamech to Noah, to through the Mosaic law, and that is built into the law. And, and, that's, and, this, and, and even Jesus, when he came, as you know, you've, you've made it clear in some of you, I, I listened to a few of your podcasts this morning, I was trying to catch up, <laughs> that God, and I agree with you, Jesus did not abolish that law. That law and the, the, the sword and the fear of the sword to govern the ungodly is, is very important to the, to the, the two kingdom concept. And the early church had no problem with this. So even though they were universally, which is sobering to think about, universally not resistant and believed that the, the teachings of Jesus were applying to just in a, in a very real way. However, they also felt that, that the state, like Caesar, Nero, had a right to use the sword um, to keep order. And it's amazing. So you get to passages like Romans 13, you know, which says, let every soul be subject to the governing authority, for there is no authority except from God. The authority which is everywhere exists has been ordained by God. He then who resists the governing authorities resists the ordinance of God, and he who resists God's ordinance will incur judgment. And he goes on to say that that sword was not given to him in vain. Crazy, that sword and that authority and that minister of God that Paul is specifically referring to there would have been Nero. And that very sword would have cut off Paul's head. And so we recognize this authority of the state to govern the ungodly, but that we as the kingdom of God, now back to that embassy, the embassy of heaven, living in these nations, live by the teachings and the laws of our king, until it will finally, from the rising of the sun till it's coming down, will will be the entire earth. So that go, going back to um, Eric's introduction on the spectrum of nine nonviolence. I won't use the other word that you said you don't like to use. We'll use non the spectrum <laughs> yeah, of nonviolence. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> um, who? So if, so then, from your position, Christians are not to. Um, be those agents, um, those ministers of God in that regard. Is that is that what you're saying? Let's Zach chime in here. <laughs> yeah, that that would be right. That those are those are pointed at people outside of of Christ and his his kingdom and his ways. So I guess my question for this, because in my mind this sets up kind of, I wouldn't say it's a contradiction, but it's a, a some a tension that needs to get resolved, is that. It seems like you have uh, a situation where a pagan or an unbeliever is doing something good in obedience to God, and it's not a sin. But if they become a Christian, 
it becomes a sin. So let me kind of explain that a little bit where I, why I say that. Because, uh, Dean, you mentioned Romans 13, which is one of my favorite. Again, you're hitting all, all my favorite passages. Uh, <laughs> um, but in Romans 13, uh, the, uh, the scripture says that uh, this, the, the civil magistrate is, is God's deacon, God's servant. Um, and, and, right. yeah. and, and, and the word that's used in the Greek is diakonos, which, which means where we get the word deacon from. And, right. and the same thing for um, he is the authorities are ministers of God. And that's in verse six. So minister, again, the Greek word uh, liturgos, where we get liturgy from. So these are, these are very religious. Uh, these, these Greek terms are religious in nature, referring to the civil magistrate as, as ministering and, and as a deacon for a God, but, but if, but it's just strange to me because if they're doing the exact right thing, they're obeying the King, they're obeying King Jesus, following his rules, but so they're not sinning, but if they became Christians, they would be sinning. Can you kind of flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, great, Eric. And this is, this is good. So this is a paradigm change. So get ready for this. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what we see in this, this two kingdom as, as described by Paul, is the, the way that God has used nations and, and leaders always. That we, in other words, there's not some big change in the new covenant. This is the way he has used it. And let me give you an example. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 25, we have a situation where God is calling for Nebuchadnezzar and brings he and his army to bring judgment against his own people, against Judah. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to see the words there that he uses. So Jeremiah 25 verse 8 says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, this is him rebuking his own people, Judah. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And this is the equivalent, the Hebrew, the exact word, the diakonos and the Septuagint, same word used in Romans 13, and will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against these nations all around and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Now, here's the big question that you're asking, which is an important one. If God is using you and, and ordaining you even for it, does God bless you? Now, it goes on in verse 12. It's interesting. Then it shall come to pass, verse 12, when the 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, saith the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. God uses these things, uses these people for this way in a, in a very shocking, in a shocking way to fulfill his purposes and his righteous judgment of this earth. Another very important one, this one's really important when you see the way God uses even like America to stop World War II or, you know, to, to do different things. Check out Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. It's really important. He says, oh, Assyrians, the rod of my anger and the staff in my hand is my indignation. So he's calling the Assyrians his rod. I will send him against a, hypocr a hypocritical nation, verse 6. And against the people of my wrath will I give him charge to take the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Now watch verse 7. It's really important. Yet he doesn't mean so, nor does his heart think so. But it is in his heart to destroy and cut off a few nations. So the important thing, and then right here, it's just like the Nebuchadnezzar passage in um, 
And Jeremiah, he goes on to say, and when this is accomplished, I'll judge them and, and, and because they think they did this in their own heart. But what's really important about this passage in, in Isaiah 10 is that he shows us that he uses them for this purpose. And in their minds, they're thinking they're just going to war. But God has a sovereign purpose behind all this. I'm going to give you one more, and I'll give you a chime to, a time to chime in. Sure, sure. The, okay, so the, this concept of this authority, uh, and Luther hit this nicely with his temporal government one, but we, the Anabaptists, of course, went further than he did. But the, the concept of God having a, a, a minister of the sword is very important, and there's an authority to that. But the, but the question, the nuance that you're making there comes up, I don't think, in any better place than Jesus before Pilate. And, and check this out. Go to John 18. So John 18, verse 33, you got the scene, you know, you have Jesus before Pilate. And then Pilate ended the praetorium again, verse 33 here, and, and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? He's, you know, he's hearing all this stuff. In verse 34, and Jesus answered, he said, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate said, are you, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? But Jesus answers, and it's like, it's as if he, in my opinion, the way I read it, it's like he was getting to something. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And so Pilate answered, well, are you a king then? It's kind of like the way we kind of spiritualize this Jesus king thing, the Jesus is Lord thing. We're like, you know, is that, does that really count? And Jesus answered, yes. You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause, I was born. Now, real quick, the next chapter, he goes down to, to, to chapter 19. And there's a really important point that goes to your point, the nuance that you're making here. And Pilate said, are you not speaking to me? This is uh, 19 verse 10. Do you not know that I have the power, that's the Greek word exousia, the authority, to crucify you and the power to release you? Now, that is a humongous, think of the Nebuchadnezzar theme, think of the Cyrus theme, and Isaiah, and this concept of God giving authority. So, Pilate, do you not know that I have the power, exousia, to crucify you and the power to release you? And Jesus' answered is profound. He says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. So, this is the crazy thing about this, about this, Eric, that Pilate was giving the authority to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus did not say, you don't have any, you're kidding, you don't have any authority. He recognized the authority. He recognizes, but just because God has ordained this and given it the authority to do those things does not mean that he's blessing those things. And I think that those examples are the example we get in the word of God of how these two kingdoms operate. Well, if I may, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a, uh, fall into the camp of, of Calvinist, and uh, I certainly affirm God's sovereignty. Everything that happens uh, certainly uh, happens in accordance with his will. Not a sparrow falls from the sky without the father knowing it or even ordaining it, or in the case of, of Joseph being sold into slavery, you know, he tells them, you, you meant evil against me, but, but God meant it for good that many would be made alive today. Um, so I certainly affirm that whatever your heart condition is, whether you're on the good guy team or the bad guy team, God is telling a story and he is accomplishing his plan. 
and no one can thwart his plan. Um, so certainly Assyria, like you said, in Isaiah chapter 10 is, is, is the ax that's being used in God's hand to essentially discipline of uh, Israel to punish them. Um, but I guess at the same time, so this, I think this would be affirmed by contemporary Christians and, and, and earlier uh, Christians are all throughout church history is they kind of understood God having two wills, if you will, not contradictory, but his um, de decretive will, what God decrees and what God ordains. So, um, or, or permissive, like what he commands us to do. So it's kind of like you have two categories, what, what God's going to do, which mm -hmm. is the secret things, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the revealed things belong to mm -hmm. us and our children forever, but the secret things belong to the Lord. So, you know, God, he's doing his stuff and we don't always know what that is, but then what does he command us to do to be faithful? So I guess kind of my, my counterpoint might be that certainly, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was used by God, whether he wanted it or not. But then interestingly, at the end of, you know, at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's life in, in yeah. chapter four uh, of Daniel, he says, um, at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, my counselors and my Lord sought me, and mm -hmm. I was established mm -hmm. in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. So it sounds like he's a believer, he's a, a man of faith, but he's not called to now abandon his role as um as king so i guess my argument would be that uh yeah every king is going to be used by god you know the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the lord as proverbs says yeah. but mm -hmm. at, at the same time you know you're so if you are a king you are you have a standard you're supposed to you're supposed to obey that's that's god's standard it's kind of like um an analogy i like to give is with um Paul in Ephesians, where he says, husbands are the head of the wife. And he, mm -hmm. he kind of makes it, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's a de facto statement, like it's true across the board. In a sense, all husbands are heads of their wives. Now, at the same time, that means something like it means that you're supposed to behave a certain way. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we know husbands don't do that, but there's a standard. So I guess my counterpoint might be that even though all kings are ordained and have authority under God, uh, if you become a Christian as a king, you are to use that authority properly, and it wouldn't be a sin to do so. You don't have to throw down your crown and stop being a king. Uh, thoughts there, Dean? Well, I just want, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Can you be a follower of Christ without following Christ? Well, certainly not. No, of course you're going to follow Christ, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trick question, trick question. <laughs> so, so you know that he came, God came to this earth and yeah. he gave us these amazing ways to live on this earth and this cure for humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 we can take it in sort of a duplicit way that sort of meditations and sort of principles and sort of things. And it's not completely ridiculous to do so. I mean, Augustine and Luther made some of these concepts and, and ideas of trying to do that. And, and they're not ridiculous. But you know what? If you take those teachings and you say, you know what? What if Jesus really meant every word he said? 
and that his cure for humanity is just what he said, and that he wants his people to come and, and represent this new embassy of heaven on earth until one day we shall reign with him. That's a really different picture. Yeah. Well, I want to let uh, my brother Gordon here to get in on this. Thoughts uh, on that, Gordon? Well, I, th I think the the end of um, Nebuchadnezzar's life was kind of the thought that I was going down to when you asked about what, our, our Dean, what you asked about, is there a blessing or are you blessed? But in thinking through, uh, you know, Dean, Jesus came into earth, giving us these teachings on how to live. Um, and just thinking through that this week, there were a couple of uh, observations that I made and kind of things I tend to, and, and these are interactions with uh, with soldiers that we see in the New Testament. And I think there's there's two places that we see this where, and it there is a, a sense of, I guess, silence here, but, but follow along with me. Um, so the first, um, Matthew chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 5, when we see the, the faithful centurion, right? Um, so the centurion comes to uh, Jesus in regards to his his uh, servant who is suffering, who is paralyzed, and um, and he talks about uh, the centurion. Kind of says, you know, uh, I too have those that are in my command or or that that serve me. And and Jesus' response is, mm -hmm. truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And then. At the end, right? Like he doesn't tell him to lay down his sword, or this isn't how you should live your life. But instead, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. says, you know, go let it be done for you as you have believed. And Jesus heals the the servant. Um, and then an, another interaction is uh, along the Jordan with John the Baptist, Luke three chapter seven, right? And there's there's a crowd here, and I think mm -hmm. it's really interesting that we see. Um, two groups of people but uh so first is the the pharisees and then there's also the soldier um that asks what then shall we do and and there's really interesting contrast here so hmm. he calls the pharisees broods of vipers so family of snakes like poisonous venomous deadly right and and kind of saying like you are leading these people to death to spiritual death uh and calls them out right hmm. uh -huh. and and then moments later more people in the crowd ask, what then should we do, right? The tax collector, but then the soldier as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and so right. going back to the point about, you know, kings being in mm -hmm. power, uh, ministers of God not abusing their, their position, we see that here, right? John responds and says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages, right? So mm -hmm. don't abuse your position. Right. And be content with what you're given. But again, we what we don't see is to to lay down your sword or to live a different life, right? And we mm -hmm, can mm -hmm. we can even contrast that with the wealthy man that Jesus says, "Well, give up everything that you have and and follow me," right? There's or times when um, you know Jesus specifically calls out sin, and we don't see that with the interactions mm -hmm. with the soldiers. Mm -hmm, but in mm -hmm. one case, Jesus says, "Truly, I tell you, no one in Israel have I found such faith." Um, and then with John the Baptist, right, that contrast between the Pharisees and, and the soldiers. That's a great point. Uh, and I think that, you know, both of those, the centurions 
um, are impressive. Now, they are certainly a, an argument by silence, and we don't know what happened to, to, you know, in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius afterwards. We don't know ha what happened to the centurions. Tertullian seems to think that they, um, they, they left the military and put down the sword. I think the more pointed, pardon the expression, uh, verse or, or concept would be John the Baptist, because it's not just a, a, a word of silence. Um, but you have a chance where soldiers actually come up to him and, and speak to him. And it's really actually important because of where he lines up in this whole covenant relationship. So Matthew 11, 11 and Luke 7, 28 brings out a very important point about John the Baptist. And the shorter one is in, in Luke 27, 28. He says, for I say unto you, among those born of woman, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And the, in the uh, 1111 in Matthew, he says, you know, greater than any of the prophets before him, um, he's the greatest. But he says, but he who, he who is, the, is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so what we see in, uh, and maybe I should read the Matthew 1111 one, because he goes, for all the prophets and the law prophesied unto John. This is Matthew 1113. And if you receive this, Elijah, who is who is for to come, for he hath ears to hear, let him hear. So the old covenant ended with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the culmination. He is the, he is better than Moses. He is better than Elijah. He fulfills all of those things. But but it's a very important point: is that John the Baptist is the greatest of the old covenant, and that this new covenant that comes in for Christ. The Sermon on the Mount actually wasn't even preached yet. Um, that when that when that passage was happening, he's letting us explicitly know that John the Baptist is of the old covenant, and lets us know that we are that the, even the least is greater than he, and it brings in a good point. And let me give you just a concept of because this is kind of where John the Baptist was coming for, coming from. In Isaiah chapter two, it speaks of this embassy that's coming, <laughs> and he puts it this way in, in Isaiah chapter two verse one. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow into it. Many people shall come, come and let us come up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we will walk in his path for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then in, in chapter nine, <clears throat> there's a really important one because Jesus, Matthew made it clear and Mark made it clear that Jesus interpreted Isaiah nine as being fulfilled in the beginning of preaching of Jesus Christ. In Matthew nine, it says, to give you the context of Matthew, it says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is in distress, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee to the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon the light has shined. And then skipping to verse five, for every warrior sandals is a noisy, from, noise, from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel for fire. Why? And then verse six, for unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. And watch this. 
and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now really pay attention to verse seven. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with just judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Matthew 4 lets us know that this was what was happening. And he quotes Isaiah 9 when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This kingdom has now come to us for us to live. It will one day be the whole earth, but now we're in this embassy stage where the church lives out this kingdom, the now and the not yet, that we live this and one day we'll have it in, in total fulfillment. Sure. Yeah. Uh, if I may jump in here, I mean, I, I would certainly agree with the already not yet dichotomy because we see that all, all throughout the New Testament, the kingdom of God is now, the kingdom of heaven is here. Uh, and then you have this picture, you know, it's like a um, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven, like a bride adorned for her husband, uh, the fulfillment of the mountain of the Lord, like you mentioned in Isaiah. Um, and so certainly we, we would agree that uh, if you want true peace, that only comes through the gospel. And as the gospel comes, you know, enemies or people who are once enemies you have the whole long list of nations and, and at Pentecost that probably wouldn't have liked each other very much. Obviously, Jews and Gentiles, a little hostile between, between them, and they are, are becoming one people uh, in, in Christ. Um, but at the same time, like you said, we live in the, all, in the not yet as well. So there's still sin in the world. There's still evil in the world. And God's, you know, God's word, God's law still applies to us. Uh, you said earlier uh, that you would, you would agree that, that Jesus had not come to abolish the law of the prophets. And in Matthew 5, he does say, you know, until, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot Amen. will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So, so basically, I guess my, my panel argument would be, you know, what does God want you to do as, you know, Christian? What are you supposed to do? Well, follow God's law. Okay, how do you apply it? Well, I, I think it's fairly simple. I mean, you look at the Old Testament laws, you, you look at their principles, and you say, okay, now in light of Christ, how does that apply to me? And we actually are given um, a one very, very explicit um, example of this in the Apostle Paul, because he quotes um, a law regarding not muzzling an ox when it's treading out the grain, and basically says, you know, hey, uh, Corinthians, this is First Corinthians 9, Corinthians, pay your pastors, like, like pay your ministers, and he says, this law about not muzzling an ox, it is written for our sake, because the plowman should, should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope. So basically he's saying, there's a principle here. The Old Testament, this is a, a case law. Um, the animal that's engaging in labor should be able to enjoy the fruits of the labor while it's, while it's working. And it's not just that it applies to oxen. It would apply to anything. If I hired someone to pick apples from my orchard 
it would be a sin for me to prohibit them from even eating an apple in the heat of the day while they're while they're picking it because that would be me being a greedy stingy uh kind of man and paul says hey that also applies that same principle applies to paying your ministers so i guess i guess my argument would be in the old testament we have clear laws i mean we can go there if you want to but i think it's kind of explicitly clear like genesis 9 clear laws if a man sheds blood by by a man shall his blood be shed, you know, capital punishment instituted right. under the Noahic covenant. Exactly. And then you have penalties for rape, uh, capital punishment for, for murder, capital punishment, uh, and for, you know, other things, homosexuality, bestiality, uh, incest, things like that. But, but, but also you have self-defense in Exodus 22. If a thief breaks in and it's night and you kill him, there is no blood guiltiness upon you as the homeowner. But if, if, if the sun has risen on him, then there will be blood guiltiness. So I guess these principles all still apply. And as Christians, we have to see, okay, how do they apply? Well, I'm not a judge and I'm not the, the president, so I don't really put people to death uh, for, for crimes. But if someone breaks into my home uh, and it's in the middle of the night and you know there's a struggle, um, and he tries to hurt my wife and children, I'm going to defend myself. And if I'm going to use lethal force, God says, that's not a sin. It's, I have not brought, broken his law. Um, so anyways, enough on for me there. Uh, Dean, Zach, want to get your thoughts on that. And then Gordon, uh, if you could. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll sort of circle back. One of the original questions you asked, Eric, was just yeah. how, you know, how do we build our case, right? And we, we started off with some interesting thoughts about citizenship and embassies. And I'll just I'll, I'll sort of just sort of give you a, a snapshot into how I how I've heard it laid out. And so I'm a, I'm a dual citizen myself. I was born in Ecuador. My parents are American. And I think dual citizen is an interesting analogy. But any, if you are a dual citizen, you'll realize sooner or later that you have to choose an allegiance to one of your citizenships um, that, that will sit above the other, that you can't have them sort of an equal playing field. For example, when I got my, you know, my TS security clearance for the military, lo and behold, I had to renounce my Ecuadorian citizenship. And I, I think the same analogy can be made with us and how we treat sort of our, our citizenship in God's kingdom versus our, our earthly citizenship. And at, at some point in time, you're going to come into contradictions where what Christ is telling you is not in line with sort of your earthly citizenship there. And that's really where we, we sort of build out that we're sojourning here as members of Christ's kingdom. And right on the, Dean and I, for, don't, don't take my word on this. If, if you read church history, we, we think church history is so important that mm-hmm. church history is sort of the spade work of biblical interpretation. And that if you read the first hundred, the first 300 years of Christianity, that there was an entire group of people who interpreted Christ's laws very differently than what you would and what, what Gordon would. And I, I think that should really cut you. And I, I think you should be, be saying, like, why is it that I live so differently than the, the early, you know, the early Christians who were closest to Christ, closest to his apostles? You know, the 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 way that I just lay it out to people is. You know, Christ is king. So with every nation, there's a there's a ruler, a law, and a people. 
So the ruler is Christ. He's our king. The law is most, most importantly, the teachings of Christ. And I usually point to the Sermon on the Mount being like the Constitution-ish. And that's not like a new thought. And then the people being his kingdom. And when you sort of build that out, you, we believe that anybody, even our own enemies, can, be, can join that kingdom, right? And so when we're, when we're sort of revisiting this thought of like, can we use violence? Can we kill people? There's all sorts of really interesting questions about, can a Christian kill a Christian? Can you kill somebody who can get saved later? And, you know, when you read Christ's teachings, I liked what you said. You, we weighed God's law in light of what Christ said. That Christ's words, they they they, I'll, they they're trump they trump they're the trump card to sort of using self defense and violence that we saw in the Old Testament and just and, and I know that we're all God fearing men I can sense us being God fearing men here and that Christ sits at our head now and that in the Old Testament God really was leading His people around and and leading them in combat and I I don't see God today leading people in combat but i do see christ sitting at our head having given us these ways to live by and that's sort of how i i build it out but don't i i really i mean it don't take my word for it to to go do a little bit of digging into how people interpreted christ's teaching specifically the sermon on the mount being matthew 5 to 7 being the one of the most important passages to look at but that's sort of how i build out the whole justification for nonviolence it's because christ laid it out and we do we examine the old testament through christ and not not and not flipping that around yeah i appreciate that and um i just want to step in here and just say i the the, the clock slips me by so yeah, much and it's already like an hour past which is fine yeah. but i i do know that that gordon and i have another appointment in a little bit we have to be at but I want to give Gordon uh, his uh, final thoughts, and then and then give you guys the the final word, and then we will uh, you know we'll, we'll be done. So so Gordon, final thoughts on this? Yeah, for the sake of time, um, I'll say that uh, Dean Zach, I, I really appreciate uh, you guys initiating and, and and seeking us out to have this conversation. I would also add that I really hope that we can have another conversation. It sounds like we didn't get to have. Uh, or again, get to talk about it all, you know, in this one setting, but, um, but I, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And I, and I appreciate, um, and I'm thankful uh, that, as Zach said, each of you are God fearing men, uh, that you see Christ as your king, and that we can have a healthy discussion. And I, I want to emphasize that, because I think in our current culture, a mm -hmm. healthy debate, uh, where we are each operating on, on, you know, different sides of the fence, um, we can come together and in love have this conversation. Amen. I think that's really important to emphasize in light of our current culture, uh, especially here in the United States. So I just wanted to say thanks to you guys, how much I appreciate it. And I, I hope we can have a conversation again in the future. Sounds great. I, I appreciate it too. Um, so I guess, I guess as a closing word, um, the big difference, I guess, is the cross. The Bible says that Yahweh is a warrior. And he also says it is impossible for him to change. He was a warrior in the old covenant. He's a warrior in the new covenant. The difference is how we'd go to battle. And Jesus Christ has made it clear to us that we still should be as active. The Great Commission is all about going forth to all these nations. 
But now we go with the cross. Now we go as lambs to the slaughter. I'll leave you with this verse and think of any possible age of history, someone breaking to our house, our wives, our nation or whatever. And I'll leave you with these words from the Apostle Paul in Romans uh, chapter eight. And he says this, and I, I call this the Christian atomic bomb, <laughs> the Christian atomic bomb. So it says um, in Romans chapter eight, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as, sleep, as sheep for the slaughter. I, that doesn't sound like just war theory to me. For your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, what? Famine, distress, fam nakedness, peril or sword. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. I, uh, that's, let's, let's try to just live by the, the ways of Christ and glorify him in our lives. And we do appreciate our chance of being here, guys. I really appreciate oh. it. Oh, uh, Dean, Zach, thank you guys as well uh, for reaching out and for uh, wanting to do this. And it's, it's, it's certainly enjoyable. I hope that maybe sometime in the future, uh, whether we come up there to visit you guys or you guys come down here and we have a, yeah, like an open discussion here. Maybe take some audience questions, you know. Sattler College, we'd love to have you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, you know, so again, thank you guys uh, for your you time. Guys. And, uh, you know, until next time, you know, take care, guys, and we'll talk to you later. Yeah, right. appreciate it. Thanks, guys. All right, God bless. See ya. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that discussion on the topic of Christian nonviolence. And like I said in my closing comments, there is so much to cover that we just did not have the time to get to. I know that there were a few things that Gordon wanted to to ask and to bring up, and same for myself, but simply due to the lack of time, we could not cover it all. So uh, essentially, this is kind of more of a part one to the discussion, and I'm hoping that we'll be able to have a part two in the near future with Dean and Zach. But still, um, I think we did cover some important topics and hopefully got you thinking about these things. And if you um, have some concerns or, or doubts or questions, you can certainly ask myself, and I'll provide that information at the end here. But one thing to keep in mind as we go about these discussions is that it does come down to a few key factors. It comes down to one's understanding of, of God's law and how it relates to Christians today. And kind of coupled with that is... Um, how one reads and applies scripture. Okay, so so really um, how we approach the word of God and how we read it and apply it, particularly God's law under the new covenant, is going to drive our conclusions. Both sides of this discussion affirm the inerrancy of scripture and the authority of God's word. Now, the will become the different conclusions. And it is your job as a Christian 
to read the scriptures, to seek to apply them properly, to read them in the proper context, and to um, understand how it all fits together. And I advocate that it does fit together. We are just not perfect in our understanding of scripture. We bring a lot of baggage to the text of scripture. Culturally, we bring our own assumptions and biases, and we have to work through that. Um, and of course, Dean and Zach are uh, believe that their uh, view is, the, is correct and that they're uh, approaching Scripture properly. And Gordon and I feel the same way here on the other side of the topic. So really, at the end of the day, you guys, the listener, have to do your own work as well. Certainly, we try to help and bring up some of the topics and some of the points and some of the, the key issues. But uh, at the end of the day, you have to do your work as well. And I would encourage you to do that. Read uh, books on the topic from both sides. And um, certainly if you have any questions about that topic, um, please uh, email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. There's also other episodes in the past that I've done on the topic of of just war theory and capital punishment. And I would also encourage you to take a look at the writings that uh, Dean and Zach have, have made and their teachings as well. And you can go to uh, the website www.sattlercollege.org to learn more information. That's Sattler College, S-A-T-T-L-E-R, and then college.org. So again, I hope that you enjoyed the discussion. I know I certainly did. And it's important that we can have friendly discussions um, and to not get upset or emotional or vicious about it. So hopefully, again, like I said, in the near future, we'll have a part two of that discussion. So until then, take care and 